Hello, it's your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley, back for another episode of the History of Comics podcast, this time with the third and concluding part of the life of Windsor McKay. When we last left off, Windsor McKay had jumped into the world of animation after becoming a cartooning star and had set new levels in animation with Gertie the Dinosaur and his own adaptation of Little Nimoy. However, he would soon embark on a new animated feature that might be arguably is his best ever, but also be probably the end of his career as, a, as, the, hall, as the top animator in, the, in the America at the time. McKay's next film was his most ambitious to date, as he was going to recreate the real life and still relatively new event with the sinking to Lusitania, an American ship sunk by a German submarine on May 7th of 1915 that spurred the United States to join World War I, as Americans believed the Germans had attacked an innocent ship at the time. It would be decades later before it was revealed that the Lusitania was designed to be retrofitted into a warship at moment's notice, and was even transporting thousands of pounds of munitions for the British war effort, thus justifying the German attack somewhat. However, for the populace at the time, it was an event the equivalent of 9-11 today, as it led to the deaths of 1,200 people, including 128 Americans. McKay wanted to show animation could be used to tell a tragic real-life world events as well and even changed his technique, moving the celluloid from rice paper, hoping to revolutionize animation even further. However, by February of 1917, McKay was forced to quit his vaudeville uh, tours by Hearst, granted it came with a significant salary increase to cover his loss of revenue from touring. Reportedly, McKay argued he needed the extra money to support his family and Hearst just raised his salary to cover it without question. It was probably for the best, as it would take McKay two years to create the sinking Lusitania, which he financed by himself, ultimately at a loss. The length of the productions wasn't just because of McKay's erratic schedule, as once again he produced animation in his free time, but also the technical problems of switching to celluloid. In one instant, according to his assistant Fitzsimmons, they were forced to redraw 750 cells due to the waves of the ocean looking like ink lines shooting each every which way. The Sinking Lusitania would finally be copyrighted on July 19, 1918 and released with Jewel Productions the next day. The film opened with a mini-documentary on how the animation was made, featuring a crew of five assistants, neither of which is Fitzsimmons R. App Adams, who had joined the production, and McKay studying a picture of the Lusitania itself. It is told the film required 25,000 drawings to produce, and on the title frame, McKay claimed to be the originator and inventor of the American cartoons. Not quite, but he was definitely one of his earliest pioneers. The short begins with the Lusitania leaving New York and passing the Statue of Liberty, following by a cut to a German submarine. McKay will use several cinematic effects for the, the action, such as having fish flee out of the way of the sub-torpedo when it's fired, and when it hits, the explosion is seen long off. It then shows the lifeboats hastily set out and met with many capsizing. A second explosion is then shown when the Lusitania is already sinking, leaving its passengers struggling in the water, it would end with the caption, The man who fires the shots was decorated by the Kaiser, and they tell us not to hate the Hun. Naturally, the film was used as propaganda tool by the United States during World War I, encouraging Americans to enlist in the war effort. Eventually, the Seeking Lusitania would net McKay $80,000 over the years at about $3.20 per drawing, well below his usual rate when he was doing comic strip territorials. Nevertheless, it would be a giant step forward in the creativity of cartoons, showing the subject matter could vary from humorous endless stories to serious true-life events, with The Sinking of the Lusitania being the first example of an animated documentary, if not war propaganda. McKay would make six more films over the next three years. The Centaurs, about a family of mythical beasts. 
Gurdian Tour, The Return of His Famous Dinosaur, Flying Circus, featuring Flip from Little Nimoy trying to ha- his hand at vaudeville himself, Bug Vaudeville, featuring a literal bug circus, The Pet, about a pet that grows into a giant monster, and The Flying House, about a couple trying to flee their creditors by equipping their house with wings and a propeller. I wonder where this is where the inspiration for Up came from. McKay planned for the three more Barnyard Band, Tales of the Jungle Imps, and a war film, but nothing came of it. Ultimately, by the 1920s, McKay was left behind by the very animation field he helped innovate. While he didn't actually invent it, despite his claims, his numerous techniques improved the process by leaps and bounds, with many cartoons like Felix the Cat and a certain mouse named Mickey eventually taking over the medium. Plus, McKay always viewed animation as an art form over a trade, which it was becoming, and thus decided to move on, despite laying the groundwork for what was to come. That didn't stop McKay from denouncing the state of animation at one point, as he did in 1927 at a dinner in his honor in New York City, where he was introduced by fellow animation legend Max Fleischer. At first trying to give the audience technical advice on animation, McKay instead stated that animation was an art, not a trade, which the medium had become, a statement that he would repeat that September in the WNAC radio interview and November 2nd on Frank Craven's The Evening Journal's Woman Hour. In his personal life, Windsor McKay preferred to be a friend to his children, leaving his wife Maude as the disciplinarian, and he would carry an insurance policy on his life, eyes, and hands to support his family if anything ever happened to him. Thanks to his income, he provided a luxurious lifestyle for his family, with Miami winter vacations, cars, and even a chauffeur. McKay hated cars and refused to ever learn to drive. McKay did share an office on the ninth floor of the American with humorous Bugs Bear and sports columnist Joe McGirt, where they had the race original sign of the Art Service Department on the door to instead be made to read Vice Department. All, his edi- all of his editorials had to be approved by editor Arthur Brisbane, one of Hearst's top um, men, and many of these at the time preached against America entering World War I. Hearst would also personally complain to McKay about many of his editorials looking uninspired, which is not surprising as he much preferred to do comic strips as they afforded much more creative freedom. They also flew against his own personal views as while Hearst was preaching against the United States entering World War I, even after the sinking of Lusitania, McKay's own son Robert and his son-in-law were about to enter it. In the summer of 1917, Captain Raymond J. Moniz went to to McKay's household to ask for their daughter Marion's hand in marriage. Despite an 18-year age difference, Moniz was 39 and Marion just 21, along with being Catholic, the McKays found little to object to the Union, especially since the young couple were madly in love and wanted to to marry before Captain Moniz was shipped off to Europe. They were married at St. Teresa's Church in Brooklyn on October 3, 1917, and Captain Moines would train with his brother-in-law, Robert McKay, along with William Adams, the son of McKay's animation assistant, App Adams, at Camp Wadsworth in South Carolina. In May of 1918, they would deploy to France, serving in the 27th Division, where both distinguished themselves. Moines would uh, eventually be promoted to the rank of major for his service to the American Expeditionary Forces, while his wife Marion gave birth to their only child, Ray Windsor Moines, on July 16, 1918. He reportedly celebrated the birth of his son with his fellow troops in the trenches upon hearing the news. Robert McKay, who had just become engaged to Theresa Teddy Munchesen, would be gassed, wounded, and suffer from shell shock, today known as post-traumatic stress syndrome, or PTSD, while serving on the Hindenburg Line. 
For his service, Robert McKay won the British Imperial Military Medal and the Distinguished Service Cross. As for Windsor McKay, he fought his own war with his employer and editor, William Randolph Hearst, and Arthur Brisbane, who called on him to come to their defense when the national mood turned against isolationism and towards fighting in World War I. McKay would eventually write a letter pointing out his son and son-in-law were proudly serving in the war and that Hearst is 100% American and never made him, had him make a pro-German cartoon even when he was advocating against the war. After the war, Robert McKay and Captain Moynes returned with the 27th Division on the Leviathan transport ship to February, on February of 1919, with Windsor McKay pulling some strings so he and Maude could greet them on one of the tugboats escorting the, the troop ship in New York Harbor. Robert McKay married Teresa on April 9, 1921, with their daughter Janet would be born the next year, followed by their son Robert in 1928. Windsor McKay would buy them a house at 2557 East 19th Street as a wedding present, while also helping Robert find a cartooning work, and his son still suffered from PTSD after his war service, even credit, and it would even credit him with his editorials and animated films to his son. However, Windsor likely did most of the concepts and layouts with Robert just filling in the details, as while his son was a talented draftsman, he was in no way in league with his father. In 1922, Windsor McKay began a new theatrical tour through New York, Boston, Chicago, Wisconsin, and D.C., apparently coming to a new understanding with Hearst over being able to do vaudeville again. He would appear in a Hearst-produced boxing film, The Great White Way, in 1924, which also included other Hearst cartoon stars like Harry Hirschfield and George McManus. However, the strain that working at Hearst was getting to him, especially under his editor, Arthur Brisbane, the old man, as his employees called him, behind his back, and who wouldn't even take a joke over a nude uh, window shade Joe McGurk painted in their office that he shared with Bugs Bear and Windsor McKay, with the caption, The Vestal Virgin. In one incident, McKay was working alone in the office when he pulled the shade down to block out some of the light, only for Brisbane to arrive unannounced, noticing the nude painting on the shade and chastised McKay, stating that he was a grandfather, he should know better. McKay looked up and had a hard time not laughing and couldn't wait to tell McGurk and McBear about it, especially how Brisbane took a blue pen out and circled each breast in the painting, proclaiming, she is no virgin. This was a prime example of the overall hatred for Brisbane, as while many could recall fond memories of working with Hearst, especially since he paid well, no one could say the same of the old man. It finally led to McKay leaving the American when his contract expired on May 17th of 1924. Brisbane was so incensed by the move that he even denied McKay his $5,000 bonus for that year. On August 3rd of 1924, Windsor McKay made his return to the Herald Tribune with Little Nimoy and Slumberland, which is now starring the character Flip, but most importantly, was McKay's return to comic strips. However, much of the original magic and narrative was gone, with the strip ending on December 26th of 1926. In fact, the Herald Tribune was so convinced Little Nimoy was done, it offered McKay the copyright back on February 23rd of 1927, which he accepted. Hearst and Brisbane, meanwhile, tried to replace McKay with artist Matt Cummins at the American, but with the understanding he was only filling in for McKay. Sure enough, Windsor McKay returned to Hearst Papers in 1927 with a salary boost, as Little Nimoy was not as popular as it once was. Ultimately, that would be the end of McKay as a comic strip artist, as he once again returned to providing art for editorials and their art for Brisbane. McKay did ensure his family inherited the rights to his work like Little Nimoy while he continued to expand his portfolio when he started doing ads for the American Tobacco Company under George Washington Hill. Reportedly, Hill wanted McKay so much, he not only offered McKay a fee that exceeded his annual salary at the American, 
but he'll threaten to pull all of the American tobacco's advertising from Hearst Papers unless he got them. McKay would insist on a letter from Brisbane to, to allowing him to do this outside work, which he received on June 14th of 1929. Meanwhile, McKay would continue on tour with a screening of his animation work on July 19th, 1927 at the Criterion Theater, leading to his return to vaudeville on the 23rd. Sadly, on November 22nd, 1927, McKay's mother, Janet, died. McKay continued to do mainly editorial work for Hearst, though he was sometimes working on some news stories, notably a lithography of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping providing a real spot-on drawing on March 3rd of 1932. Outside of that, McKay did editorial artwork to his dying day. In his personal life, McKay enjoyed drinking at the Rain House, a local bar where he often paid for numerous rounds of drinks with his were his friends and co-workers, but rarely more than one for himself. Reportedly, the bartender noted that McKay would sip one drink to every one of his friends' five. McKay also adored his grandchildren and young cousins, helping pay for their schooling along with allowing them to stay overnight at his house, but many remembering watching him work at his art table. Sadly, Windsor McKay died of a cerebral hemorrhage on July 26, 1934 at 4.40 p.m., a Masonic and Elk service was held in his honor while his body was entombed at the Evergreen Cemetery. Neither of his children, Mary nor Robert, cast the last checks he ever wrote to them. To the surprise of many, McKay did not die a millionaire due to his lavish lifestyle, though he did leave a $100,000 life insurance policy for his family, along with $30,000 in various properties, amounting to about $140,000 for his family after estate taxes. Unfortunately, his widow Maud would not would spend most of the money trying to maintain the extravagant lifestyle she was so used to, forcing her to sell her house in the 1940s. She would later die on March 2, 1949, residing with her daughter and son-in-law in her last days. McKay's son Robert inherited his mother's financial failings while also being unable to follow in his father's footsteps. He eventually found work as an illustrator for the Training Aid Special Services at Fort Ord before dying of cancer on April 21, 1962. His sister Marion died shortly after on April 2nd of 1965. As for McKay's work, his family was not sure what to do with with the unused and uh, original art he had accumulated over the years, as this was the time before anyone knew the value of the original artwork. Likely it would be worth millions today. Of note, McKay's always insisted his original art would be returned to him, a notion that artists believe to this day. In March of 1937, Harry Chesler's syndicate announced a Little Nimoy revised version for syndication by Windsor McKay Jr., but failed to attract much attention. In 1947, Robert McKay next formed McKay Features Syndicate Incorporated with Irving Mendelston, a longtime fan, which attracted the attention of C.R. Richardson of Richardson Features Syndicate for another revival of Little Nimoy, but it once again failed, largely due to the original strips being recut and mangled. Ultimately, Robert McKay would entrust his father's art to Mendelssohn, who would then return it to Robert's sister, Marion, in 1960. Mendelssohn was also responsible for saving much of McKay's animated work in 1947, as his son Jack and friend Robert Brofferton discovered over 100 film cans, sadly many of which had turned to dust over the years due to being 35mm nitrate. Thankfully, 60 cans were saved, like the hand-colored Little Nimoy and Guardian Tour, and were reproduced on 16mm film preser- for preservation. It will be years later that the impact of McKay's work will be fully known when on November 30th of 1955, the Disneyland television special had Walt Disney perform a dramatic reenactment of Windsor McKay's vaudeville act with Gertie the Dinosaur in the story of the animated drawing. 
Walt Disney personally admired McKay and the innovations he brought to the animation that his company would later master, and when he gave a tour to the studio to his son Robert McKay, Disney proclaimed, all of this should have been your father's. In 1968, Windsor McKay was called the greatest innovator of his age in the history of the comic strip, and would later inspire Chuck Jones, the brilliant Warner Brothers animator of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, who stated it took animators 20 years to pick up where McKay left the medium. In 1972, the Windsor McKay Award was established at the Annie Awards to honor lifetime achievement in animation, with notable winners being Max Fleischer, Bruce Timm, and Tim Burton. In 1974, an informational film, Remembering Windsor McKay, was produced and featured narration by an 80, then 84-year-old John A. Fitzsimmons, his young animation assistant, who provided experts on the Gertie the Dinosaur and the Sinking of the Lusitania. His comic strip work wasn't forgotten either, as no less than Milton Knife. The uh, legendary artist of Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon said McKay's art was unapproachable in imagination and quality. Martin artist uh, Gary Trudeau of Doonesbury acclaimed McKay's sense of humor along with making Slumberland seem real despite his fantastical element. In 1996, Windsor McKay was post-ominously inducted into the Will Eisner Hall of Fame alongside Hal Foster, Bob Kane, and Alex Raymond. Fine company. In 2002, American astronomer Roy A. Tucker would actually name an asteroid after McKay with the number 113461. As for his most popular creation, Little Nimoy, like many any great work, would have a legacy long after his creator had passed. Neil Gaiman regularly made references to Little Nimoy in his legendary Sandman comic book, while the property has been adapted to everything from cartoons to video games, such as a 1990 Nintendo game from Capcom. Most recently, a modern adaptation is being produced by Netflix, featuring a gender-flipped uh, little lead character, Nima, played by uh, Marlo Barkley, with Jason Momoa playing a reimagined flip, now a nine-foot, half-man, half-beast. And that is a rambling and too brief biography of the great Windsor McKay, one of the great innovators of both comic strips and cartoons. During his life, he set a new standard that remains a benchmark to this day. Whether pushing comic strips with Little Nimoy to perfecting early animation with Gertie the Dinosaur, McKay was not just a master of the two mediums when, he, when, when a few are lucky to be able to do just one. There will be only one Windsor McKay in the world, and comics and cartoons are all the better for it. I would like to thank the chief source for these episodes, Windsor McKay, His Life and Art by John Kanemaker, a fantastic book detailing the great artist's life along with beautiful reprints of his art and even his animation. A must-own for any comic strip and animation fan. My name is Mark McCray, and I'm the author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. I'm Dan Kling, co-host of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives features programming trends from the 1966 television season all the way through the last hurrah of the early digital age of the 1990s. On the show, if it's animated, we talk about it. Order your signed copy today at tbsool.com. Listen to the podcast at esonetwork.com and all podcast platforms. Now it is May 12th, 2022, time for the favorite comic of the week, Crossover number 13 by Donnie Coates and uh, Jeff Shaw, which finds the conclusion of this current story arc that finds uh, Donnie Coates himself, yes, the writer of this series, teaming up with our heroes to take on Negan, who is the serial killer of the Aircombuck artist. 
this is another great series that really plays up the really how just crazy meta this uh, story is, where Donnie Coates actually inserting himself into the storyline, along with a big reveal about who the real villain is. And uh, Donnie Coates, as a character in the comic, actually makes a point about, hey, check all these cool cameos I'm going to throw in here. As you know, you have Negan, you have the detective, Detectives Walker and Pilgrim from uh, Powers. It's insane. He's just having a ball with it. And this is, once again, this is a story that really plays up the potential of the, what crossover can be. Is that it's basically a story about comic book characters interacting with the real world. And it's matched by Jeff Shaw's gorgeous art, which does great renditions of all the classic uh, characters and, those, uh, and the original ones as well. And overall, this is a, like I said before, when I ever talked to this comic book, this is not a comic book I would recommend to new comic book fans. Start off with something different because this is a comic book for hardcore comic book fans like myself. But for people like myself, it's a ball. So yeah, a lot of fun. And with that, that's the conclusion for uh, this for the uh, life of the great uh, Windsor McKay in both uh, comic book strips and cartoons. Join me again next week. We'll start with a new biography. And until then, go out and enjoy yourself a good comic book. <laughs>